In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And be seated. Earlier this summer in June, fans of the TV show Jeopardy found themselves stunned at one point in the show. One of the contestants chose a puzzle under the category adjectives. It was worth only $200, and it read as follows. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, this be thy name. To even the host's surprise, all three contestants simply stood there in silence, not even one of them attempting to chime in. Eventually, the host revealed the answer, what is hallowed. As you would imagine, the scene went viral in the days following, and it serves as a helpful reminder to the church that the average American today is simply becoming less and less familiar with the Bible. And while that's regrettable on many levels, there is a silver lining, I think, to it. You see, when the Bible is largely forgotten, so too are all of its misconceptions. There's something wonderful and exciting that happens when you read the Scriptures for the first time without any preconceived notions. When people read the Bible on its own terms, with a fresh pair of eyes, the drama of the Scriptures is rediscovered. And the result is similar to what happened in King Josiah's day, that there is a a new, renewed fervor for the Lord. Well, the book of Jonah is a great example of how our preconceived notions can cloud our understanding of God's Word. It would bring my heart so much joy this morning if if just one of you heard the story of Jonah today for the first time. But chances are, if I asked you to tell me who Jonah was, my hunch is that every one of you would, would not be like those contestants on Jeopardy. My hunch is that probably all of you would chime in and say, well, he was the man who was swallowed by the whale. And while that's true, it's far, actually, it's far from the main point of the book of Jonah. Sadly, many get hung up on this one part and they let it overshadow the entire story. Jonah has become a sort of trope. Uh, His name is known both in and out of the church because his story is simply so unbelievable. People say, well, if you can believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, then you can believe anything. To take the story at face value is seen as the pinnacle of gullibility. So it's no wonder that the book of Jonah has been a particular object of scrutiny in the last several centuries by biblical scholars. Like the other miracle that we heard read this morning in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus walked on water, the story of Jonah has been explained away by scholars. It's a fantastic story, but but certainly not one that was meant to be historical. I think sadly, even many within the church have told the story of Jonah with a wink and a nod. So inquiring minds will find it helpful that the Library Research Service of the Encyclopedia Britannica has issued historical support for the story of Jonah. It notes that the story is at least feasible in a physical sense. The Britannica points out that the average sperm whale has a mouth that's 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. That's a big mouth. That's bigger than my college dorm room. (laughs) It continues on by saying that the sperm whale largely feeds on squid, which were 
largely bigger than a man. As to whether or not a man could survive in a whale's stomach for some period of time, the Britannica maintains that he certainly could, though the circumstances would be indeed very uncomfortable. There would be air to breathe of a sort. The whale would need to have air inside of him to maintain his buoyancy. It would also be quite hot. It would be roughly 104 to 108 degrees inside a whale's stomach. To be honest, it would also just be very, very gross. The gastric juices of the whale's stomach would make it slimy and moist, but it wouldn't digest living matter, otherwise the stomach itself would begin to be digested. So it's, it's plausible that Jonah could have survived in the whale. It would have been claustrophobic, stifling hot, gross, wet, hard to breathe, what we here in Charleston call August. But, okay, it would have been way worse than a whale, but according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, it was at least feasible. In fact, it goes on to tell of several cases that resemble the account of Jonah. One occurred in 1891 when the whaling ship Star of the East spotted a large sperm whale in the Atlantic Ocean. It sent out two harpooning vessels to try and catch it, and in the process, one of those was capsized. One sailor drowned and another disappeared. Well, they did eventually kill the whale and, and hold it in, and I didn't know much about the whaling process, but it takes a while to get a whale disassembled and onto the ship, and so it was the next day that they got the stomach of the whale onto the ship's deck, and when it was opened, voila, there's the missing sailor from the capsized boat. He was unconscious, but he was alive. He was revived at sea, and eventually he even resumed his duties on board the ship. So whether it was a sperm whale or some other great fish, the Hebrew word here, dag, simply means a general kind of fish, we shouldn't dismiss Jonah as fiction. In fact, Jesus himself takes Jonah to be historical when he refers to Jonah to make a point about Jesus' own historical death and resurrection. It's really unfortunate, sadly, that people get hung up on the whale because, if you pardon the pun, please, it was actually a red herring. The whale is incidental to the story. If you believe in the God of the Bible, then you must assert that he could have used any means at his disposal to save his servant, Jonah. This, after all, is the God who created the heavens and the earth by speaking it into existence. This is the God who holds all things together by the word of His power. This is the God who took on flesh and dwelt among us and died and rose again. If He can do those things, what is it for Him to appoint a great sea creature of the deep to swallow at just the right time His prophet? You see, miracles are only a problem for those who are determined from the outset to dismiss any idea of the supernatural, which, of course, is its, own, its a tenet of faith to believe that. So we don't want to become obsessed over the whale and miss what's happening in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah teaches us so much more than that God could cause a man to survive in a whale for three days. We don't want to be like Thomas John Carlyle who said, I was so obsessed by what was going on inside the whale that I missed the real drama going on inside of Jonah. The book of Jonah teaches us many lessons. It teaches us about God's boundless compassion on all people. 
It teaches that he is in control over everything. But Jonah is also a great illustration about what happens when there is a collision between the will of God and the will of one of his children. How does God respond whenever one of his people deliberately disobeys him? That's the lesson that I want to draw out with you this morning from the first two chapters of the book of Jonah. If you're interested in going deeper in the book of Jonah, I recommend to you two folks that I found helpful, uh, James Montgomery Boyce and Liam Golliger. Both of them happened to serve at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm indebted to them both, and I commend them and their works to you. So let's turn to the first two chapters of Jonah and see what God does with his people when they deliberately disobey his word. Jonah chapter 1, now the word of the Lord came to the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah actually appears earlier in the Bible. In 2 Kings 14, we are told that he was a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel who began his ministry around 760 B.C. He was from a town called Geth Hefer, which was just one hill away from the town of Cana in Galilee where Jesus performed his first miracle. It was about three miles away from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, so Jonah was a prophet of Israel in the region of Galilee, and it turns out he had quite the resume. He'd been a pretty good prophet up to this point. He had a successful ministry. Second Kings tells us that through his preaching, God restored the borders of Israel. There would have been a lot of nationalistic pride surrounding Jonah. He was a hero. So what happens in these first three verses in Jonah is actually quite shocking. God commands this great prophet of Israel to leave Israel and to preach to Israel's enemy. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which would, just a generation after Jonah, uh, conquer Israel. And while it wasn't unheard of for a prophet of Israel to minister beyond the borders of Israel, it was quite rare. Elijah had gone to Zarephath, and Elisha went to Damascus, but neither of these instances had, was anything like the commission given to Jonah. Nineveh was huge, and God was not calling Jonah to just one person. He was calling Jonah to proclaim his message to the whole city. Moreover, Nineveh was, was quite dangerous. The prophet Nahum described the people of Nineveh like this. He said, Nineveh is a city full of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without its victims. Cr the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses, all because of the wanton lust of the harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her witchcraft. Who would want to go and preach to a people like that? What would happen to a prophet of the Lord in such a place? The commission to Jonah was difficult and it was surely dangerous, but ultimately neither of these reasons was the real cause of his disobedience. The real reason Jonah disobeys is, is found at the end of the book, and so we'll leave that to next month and when Jonah 4 comes up 
again in the liturgy. For now, we only need to see that the word of the Lord is clear, and Jonah deliberately disobeys. The Lord tells him to get up, to go east to Nineveh, and it said, verse 3 tells us Jonah gets up and goes west to Tarshish, the furthest point in the known world, opposite of Nineveh. Jonah flees from the Lord, and the first thing that we see about how God responds to him is he lets him go. He lets him go. That's astonishing. Here is God Almighty. He can do anything that he pleases. He's all-wise and all-powerful, and in him there's no darkness at all, and, and he lets him go. No doubt a, a good prophet of Israel like Jonah would have known the Psalms well. He knew the words probably that we just said a moment ago in the Psalms. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Jonah knew this in his head. But you see, when our hearts are set on disobedience, our minds are blind to the truth. And our feet will always follow our heart. I want you to imagine with me what Jonah's journey would have been like. He gets up, he, he walks out of his house, and he looks to the right down the road, which goes to Nineveh, and he quickly turns left to go down the road to Joppa. He walks the 65 miles or so in a, maybe a couple of days, and he actually reaches Joppa. And what do you know? There's a ship right there heading to where he wants to go, heading to Tarshish. How often a ship heading to Tarshish would, would be there, we don't know. But the point is that seem, things seem to be going pretty well for Jonah at this point. As, he, as soon as he runs away from the Lord, things, he's finding what he's looking for. Things seem to be going his way. Liam Gallagher points out that if you had asked Jonah at this point, Jonah, how do you feel about what you are doing? He might have said something like this, oh, I have a great peace in my heart about all this. You know, at first I thought I was going against the Lord, but, but look how things have just come together since I left. I guess what God said for me to do must not have been what He really wanted me to do all along. So based on my feelings, based on my circumstances, this must be what God wanted me to do. And at this point in my life, it's the, really the best thing for me. You know, many people can approach the notion of guidance like that, they can base their decision-making predominantly on their feelings or their circumstances. If they have a sense of peace about things, it must mean that God wants them to do it. Or if their circumstances come together, it must be a sign from God. Charles Spurgeon told the story of a boy he knew back when he was in school who had a bad temper. He was prone to get angry, and whenever he got angry, no matter what, this boy would always throw something. And Spurgeon said this, he said, what struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something when he got angry, but whenever he got angry, there was always something at hand to throw. <laughs> you see, our circumstances, the things around us, may not be signs of God's will, but rather tests of faith. The first lesson Jonah teaches us this morning is summed up nicely by Matthew Henry he says, the ready way is not always the right way. Our feelings or our circumstances should not be the ultimate factor in discerning God's will. God's will was not to be found in how Jonah felt nor by how his circumstances came. 
about, but rather in God's revealed Word. His Word is always the ultimate factor in the life of the Christian for determining His will. And my friends, if you're, being, if you're not being guided by God's Word, then you cannot trust your feelings or your circumstances. Notice the course of Jonah's journey. Four times the word is repeated down in this passage. We've emboldened it in the bulletin to make it clear. Jonah's journey, while it may not have been described, and he may not have described it this way, but it was actually, ultimately, downhill. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into the innermost part of the ship. And finally, he goes down beneath the waters into the very depths of the sea. And James Montgomery Boyce says, It is always that way when a person runs from the Lord. The way of the Lord is always up. Consequently, any way that is away from Him is going to be down. The way may look beautiful when we start, The seas may look peaceful and the ship attractive, but the way is still down. So Jonah disobeys God's clear word. And the first thing the Lord does is he lets him go. Secondly, he lets him pay. Mediterranean cruises aren't cheap. They've never been cheap, especially long ones across the entire Mediterranean. We are not told exactly how much this fare to Tarshish would have cost, but since we know that a prophet of Israel was not a wealthy profession, we can rightly assume that he had to pay a significant amount of his life savings just to board this ship. Donald Gray Barnhouse in his sermons on Jonah pointed out that Jonah always had had to pay the fare. He noted that Jonah did not get to where he was going since he was obviously thrown overboard. And he did not get a refund, obviously, on his ticket. So Jonah had to pay the full fare, and yet he didn't get to where he wanted to go. And Barnhouse says it's always that way. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you are going, and you always pay the full fare. On the other hand, when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you are going, and He pays the fare. Jonah never got to where he was going, and he still had to pay the full fare. Temptation is always writing checks that can't be cashed. It's always offering much but delivering so little. It may go well for a time, but in the end, you always pay the fare. This can be a hard truth, I think, for those who are actively in disobedience. It can be easy to shrug it off and tell ourselves, well, maybe I'm the exception. Maybe maybe nobody will find out about it. Maybe things will just work out in the end. My friends, the second lesson for us this morning is that deliberate disobedience always costs you more than you think. It always costs us more than we think in this life. It can cost you your bank account. It can cost you your reputation. It can cost you your marriage. It can cost you even your family and friends. It always costs you more than you think, either in this life or the next So God lets Jonah go, he lets Jonah pay, and then he lets Jonah have it. By the end of verse 3, Jonah has made his choice quite clear. He's miles away from where the Lord had first commanded him to go to Nineveh, and, and days if not weeks have passed by at this point, and all the fear, all the adrenaline that was wrapped up in that initial disobedience, it's probably subsided by now. 
He's switched off his conscience and he's gone down into the ship to take a nap. But once we get to verse 4, Jonah is no longer the one doing all the action. Now it's the Lord's turn to act. Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest upon the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The Lord responds to Jonah's disobedience by hurling a great tempest upon the sea. It's the exact same word that's used in verse 5 and verse 15 when the mariners hurl the cargo overboard and then eventually hurl Jonah overboard. God's throwing a storm at Jonah. And the final lesson that you and I learned this morning from Jonah's disobedience is that when we choose to disobey God as his children, he first lets us go without much of a fuss. But if we persist in our disobedience, he'll get rough with us. The storm is so violent that even the experienced mariners are terrified for their lives. We can't help but think forward to a similar storm. We're told about it in our reading from Matthew's gospel. Jesus' disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee during the night when a storm had violently come upon them. Mark's gospel tells us that they had been making headway painfully for much of the night when all of a sudden they see Jesus walking out on the water. They think he's a ghost. They'd already seen Jesus calm another storm merely by speaking to it, But here, he's actually making a mockery of the storm itself, all the storm's power. Jesus stands in in utter contrast to all the fear and the exhaustion and the toil of the disciples. Jesus is just out for an evening stroll on the waters of the storm. And when he gets into their boat, the storm ceases. My friends, note this well. The Lord who can calm the troubled waters of your life is the same Lord who can stir them up against you. And whether He calms the storm or stirs it up depends on whether He is with you in the boat. Or better yet, if you are with Him. If Jesus is in your boat, if you're trusting in Him, if you're being obedient to His Word, then when the storms come, you can cry out like Peter, Lord, save me, and He will. He will give you peace in your heart. But if you're running from Him, if you are being disobedient to His Word, then He will throw a storm at you to wake you up, to cause you to turn to Him because He loves you. The storm is a severe mercy for Jonah. Romans 1 tells us that the worst thing that God can do is wring His hands and give us up to ourselves. God lets his children go first, but only so far until he finally intervenes. He gets rough with Jonah in order to rouse him from his stupor of his stony rebellion. In verse 12, we see that Jonah knows that this storm is from the Lord. He knows that his disobedience has caused not only his life, but the innocent lives of those around him to become endangered. The sailors know they're in trouble, but they have no idea why, but, but Jonah does. And then Jonah offers one of the saddest statements in all of the Bible. Instead of telling the sailors that the storm will stop if they simply turn around and go back to Joppa so he can go to Nineveh, instead he tells them to, to throw him overboard because Jonah would rather die than to obey God's word. 
So the sailors eventually do just that. They reluctantly throw him overboard, and the waves cease. But Jonah's rebellious heart continues down, 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 down into the very depths of the sea. And even there, he knows that he cannot escape the Lord. So how does the Lord finally break through Jonah's hard heart? We get a glimpse of it in chapter 2, this prayer. Notice it's, it's all in the past tense. When he says in verse 2, I called to the Lord out of my distress, he's referring back to when he was drowning in the water, back before the fish swallowed him. He describes the very moment the Lord broke through to him in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, he says. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. God pursued him to his very last breath until he stopped running. And even though he couldn't speak under the water, the cry of Jonah's heart was taken by the Holy Spirit into the very throne room in heaven and translated into the very heart of God. And it was at that moment, right before Jonah drowned in the deep, that the same Lord who threw the storm at him appointed a fish to save him. In the water, Jonah was sure he would die, but in the fish, he was certain that he would live. Jonah had run as far as he could. He was down in the depths, and he realized that the Lord who hurled the storm only meant to restore him. Beloved, where are you this morning? Are you on the run? Are you down in the depths? Whether you have been running from God for just a season or for your whole life, hear this. Don't stop running. Just turn around and run to Him. I know that may sound counterintuitive, but you may be thinking, well, I've been running away from Him so long. Will He have me back? He will. That's the lesson the prodigal son learned. It's the lesson that Jonah learned. But Jonah learned something else, too. Unlike the prodigal son, Jonah learned that God was not content to wait around until Jonah came to his senses. Jonah learned that God is a heavenly father who comes chasing after his disobedient sons and daughters. Yes, he may let them go for a while, but he will have them in the end, even if it means hurling a storm or knocking you down into the depths. God is the great hound of heaven who hunts down his beloved. Is he coming after you this morning? In Jesus Christ, we see that there was no limit to how far God would go in running after his people. He traversed heaven and earth to run after them to ensure that not a single one of them would be snatched out of his hand. This is what Jonah is reflecting on inside the fish. It's a lavish grace and the relentless pursuit of God. This is what caused him to sing out with confidence from the belly of a fish down in the bottom of the ocean, salvation belongs to the Lord. Wherever you are this morning, why don't you turn to him now and make that song your own? Let's pray. If you're feeling even the slightest nudge to turn to the Lord, I invite you to make these words your own. 
O Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin, yet once again I seek your face, open your arms and take me in, and freely my backslidings heal, and love the faithless sinner still. Amen.